0: Amen. I think that was a a song, a song that I needed right before you come into the pulpit, that you know, that we can come to Him and we can remember all that He has done, and that's why we're here, right? We're always here to remember what Christ has done, not what we have done, but what He has done. And as Jeff mentioned, we are taking a a break in our Ephesians series, so if you would Turn in your Bibles to Mark, chapter ten. We're going to be looking at, at one verse, as he mentioned, uh, Mark chapter ten, verse forty five. But uh, for the sake of of context, I'm going to ha- uh, go ahead and read from verse thirty two through verse forty five. And uh, I think this is a an amazing an amazing passage. And as Jeff mentioned, we normally would go. Uh, maybe the gospel narratives, we'd look at different things, and this year we are looking at the, the gift of the incarnate Son. So let's go ahead and read, beginning at, at verse 32 of Mark chapter 10. This is the Word of God. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, "'Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you.' And he said to them, "'What do you want me to do for you?' And they said to him, "'Grant us to sit at at one, one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory.' And Jesus said to them, "'You do not know what you are asking.' Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, "You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant." and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. This is our verse. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we come before You, and we come in our weakness and our frailty. We come because You were willing you're willing to, to, to draw us to Yourself, and Lord, that we would just come humbly before You, and we would cry out to You. And Lord, my prayer is that if anybody does not know You here this morning, Lord, that Your Spirit would work in such a way, and through the proclamation of the gospel, Lord, that they would come, that they would come to know You, and Your grace, and Your forgiveness, and Your, your joy unspeakable. Lord, we thank You again. this Christmas season, this Advent season. Lord, that we remember Your first coming. Lord, we love You. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as everybody, I think, knows here, Christmas is about the coming of Christ into the world, and we know that it's about the Son of God who existed eternally with the Father. The, The Hebrew says that He was the radiance of the glory, the exact representation of His nature, and He took on human nature, and became a man. We know that Christmas is about the birth of of the man, Jesus Christ, through the the Virgin Mary, that He was conceived miraculously and took on human flesh. We know that Christmas is about the coming of this man named Jesus, who in in Him was the fullness of deity, as it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. We know that it's about the fullness of time, that the coming of the, the promised one who was promised by all the prophets would come into the world, as it says in Galatians 4 verse 4. It's about this ruler who would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5 2. It's about this child who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, as it says in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. It's about a Messiah who would, is the anointed one, who is the offspring of Jesse and the son of David, the king who would come. But according to our, our text this morning, it's about this, the coming of the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. This passage that we are looking at today tells us why Jesus came into the world. And, and, and we can we can very easily get caught up in, in the sentimental aspects of, of Christmas. And, and some of those things, I mean, as, as I think Jeff was saying earlier, or, or maybe it was Warren, but, you know, we can get caught up in doing the things like family and friends, and we can kind of forget about Christmas. I love those things. I love getting together with family. I love uh, coming together to worship. I love uh, eating good food. These are things that are, are, are given by God for us to enjoy. But we should never forget the reason, the reason that Jesus came. And when we look at this this passage, we see what what Jesus came to accomplish. In this one small verse, we really get the whole theme of of, of the gospel. Not only the gospel of Mark, but but the gospel together. But when you look at, at Mark's gospel in particular, This is really the first time that that Jesus has declared why He came. As as Mark is laying out the gospel, as Jesus is talking to His disciples, there are frequent instances up to this point that that Jesus has told them that He is going to suffer, that He is going to rise from the dead. But He hasn't told them why. And I I think that's why there's some confusion with the disciples. Why are you telling us that you're going to suffer in in Mark chapter 8? Verse 31, for instance, it says, And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And you could just imagine the disciples saying, What? Why? But He doesn't tell them why. He goes on in the very next chapter, Mark Chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus says this, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He is killed, after three days, He will rise. But again, no indication why. But it does say in the very next verse, but, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask Him. They don't know why. Why, Jesus, are you, are you telling us this? But again, Jesus doesn't explain to them why. And then in Mark chapter 10, verse 33 and 34, Jesus says this. He says, See, we are are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock Him and, and spit on Him and flog Him and kill Him, and after three days He will rise. But again, there is no indication. He does not tell them why He's going to die. But that's when we come to to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It says, for even the Son of Man, He finally tells them, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 explains why Jesus would have to suffer, why He came into the world and we celebrate Christmas each year, and, and, and rightfully so, but, but let us not miss the fact that this, this baby being born in a stable, being laid in a manger, came for a purpose, and that purpose was to come and to, to seek and save that which was lost, to, that, that He was the Son of Man who came not to be served but to serve and, and to give His life a ransom for many. And so in our passage, it, as we look at this, I'm, I'm going to mark out three points One is the the condescension of the the Son of Man. The second is the service of the Son of Man. And lastly, the the ransom of the Son of Man. And when we look at the the condescension of the Son of Man, we just see it in in these first few words. In the first part of verse 45, he says, "'For even the Son of Man came.'" I mean, you can, you can get so much out of that because, you know, we could easily miss the point that, that Jesus existed from all eternity, and He wasn't just coming into the world to be born at this time and, and coming into existence. He existed from all eternity. And notice that, that Jesus uses this term for Himself, the Son of Man, and it's the, it is the, the title that Jesus refers to Himself most in the Gospels. In fact, I read that it was 65 times in the four Gospels, Jesus refers to Himself as the Son of Man. And this title is, is drawn from the Old Testament Scripture, and it's a messianic title of the, the coming anointed one, the one that, would, that, that existed, as I said, from all eternity that was be, coming into the world. See, Jesus didn't have His beginning in that, in that stable, in that manger. Jesus is the eternal one who existed before He was ever born in the manger. He's the Son of God and the Son of Man. And as the Son of God, we, 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 we love the fact that Jesus is God's Son. And as the Son of God, Jesus walked on the water. As the Son of God, Jesus controlled the weather. As the Son of God, He healed the blind. As the Son of God, He, he raised the dead. But in Jesus taking on humanity, He was able to come alongside us, and He was able to weep with us. We see that He became hungry and thirsty and tired. As the Son of Man, He understands the the suffering and and the pain that that we go through. As the Son of Man, He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And and as the Son of Man, He he could die on a a cross for us. The the term the Son of Man is more than just a term describing Jesus' humanity. While it is that it is describing his humanity, we see it so clearly that it means so much more. If you would turn back to to Daniel chapter seven. And in Daniel chapter seven, you see this picture of of Christ or or the Son of Man being presented. And in this in this passage in Daniel chapter seven, in verses nine and ten, you see the ancient of days who has taken his throne and, and there, he's there, and He's seated, and He's clothed with as white as snow, and His hair on His head was as pure wool. And, and flames of fire are proceeding from His, his throne. But then when you jump down to verse 13 of Daniel 7, it says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. This one that is born of, of of a woman, he's he's the son of man. When I we had some people living with us at one time. This little girl had a great relationship with her and and she had this term for me. It was this. It was manchild. <laughs> and she would call me manchild. That, that, that term means something, doesn't it? I'm a human being. <laughs> I wasn't a child, but it was a term of endearment to me. And Jesus is using this term that is spoken of in, in Daniel 7 in, in such a way that He is the Son of Man, meaning that He is born of a woman, that He, he, he is a, a human being. But, but it says in verse, verse 14, and, and to Him was given dominion. Again, He didn't didn't have dominion. Just make a note of that. He didn't have dominion. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. Notice that in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that, that Jesus says, I did not come to be served. But in this passage, it's saying that the Son of Man is what? Going to be served. All languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. And I, I believe what, what Daniel is seeing here is, is Daniel is seeing a vision into the future, and, and we know that from the context. He's seeing these kingdoms being set up and he and he's looking to the future where there's going to be this, this final kingdom that the Son of Man takes his seat. And he sits on his, his throne. And so Daniel is seeing this, this vision, and, and I believe this, this is a vision after the incarnation of Christ. It's, it's after the crucifixion of Christ, it's after the resurrection of Christ, and it's after the ascension of Christ. And I, I think you can see this so clearly in Philippians chapter 2, because I, I think that these passages go so well together. Because in Philippians chapter 2, you see this connection between Mark chapter 10, verse 20, or 45, and Daniel 7. And just listen as, as I read what Paul says. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. What did Jesus say to, to His disciples? You should be servants of one another. The greatest in the kingdom is going to be, what, a slave to all. And so, Paul is, I think, echoing that, that do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, Jesus says that you should serve to His disciples because the Son of Man came to serve. Paul says this, what Jesus did. That is so in line with Mark chapter 10, verse 45. But Paul goes on, he says, therefore, and I think this is the connection between Daniel 7. He says, therefore, God has has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think those, those pictures of, in Daniel chapter 7 that, that Daniel is looking forward to has already been fulfilled when Paul writes this. But these two are, are mirrored, and it's a picture of God uh, and His condescension to come and to save you and I, to come and save sinners. I have a, a quote, and it's a little bit longer, but I, but I think it was it was so helpful to me. Uh, it's an article called The Condescending God by, by Paul Levy. And he says this, he says, I want us to think for a moment of our condescending God, because when we use the term condescension of God, we are coming very near to the wonder and glory of who God is and the beauty of the gospel. And this will inevitably lead to the worship, to us, lead us to worship Him, God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He made heaven and earth, and He works all things according to the power of His will. He is holy, holy, holy. The God who sits enthroned in heaven and to whom the nations of this earth are like a drop in the bucket, this God condescends. God who is superior to us, in whom we live and move and have our being, is a condescending God. He goes on, it is not patronizing to to describe God in this way, and it is not pejorative. It is, in fact, the heart of the gospel and the story of the Bible. The greatest and most wonderful example of God's condescension is in the incarnate Incarnation of the Lord Jesus. God became man and took on flesh. The creator became a creature. The one who hung the stars, lay helpless in a manger. The one who who we teach our children is so big and so strong and so mighty, became so tiny, so weak, and so powerless. The king of the angels was made a little lower than the angels. The creator of time entered time. The one whose everlasting arms are underneath his people lay vulnerable in his mother's arms. There is no greater condescension. It's beyond illustration, beyond comparison, that God condescends is our only hope in life and death. Without God's condescension, there would be no salvation for you and me, there would be no good news. It is the glory of our God that He condescends. Amen. I mean, where would we where would we be if Christ did not come? I mean, you, you look at the life of Christ and and you know he lived some 30 years on earth. He he ministered for some three years, but the impact of his incarnation had had a ripple effect across the whole world. This world is, is so different because Christ condescended. He took on flesh for, for you and I. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. And we see in Mark ten forty five that This one who is is, is the the king of kings and the Lord of lords, he came. He's the one that Jesus speaks to himself as the the son of man, as the one who will be the possessor of all dominion for an everlasting kingdom. That that same person came. But, But before he could take his place on that throne, we have to look at our second point because he came for a reason, that, and that second point is the service of the Son of Man, because before He was presented to the Ancient of Days, before He takes this throne, before every knee uh, will bow and every tongue confess that, that He is Lord to the glory of God, the Father, He must be the, the, the servant. Oh, Christ must become the servant, and we see that really just in the second part of our verse, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And although this, this God was, was completely sovereign, He, he came not to be, to, to be served, and He did so by, by taking on human flesh, but not just taking on human flesh, by becoming the, the lowliest of humans, the, the servant, the slave, that He might serve sinners in, in carrying out the will of the Father. And if we go back to, to Mark chapter 10, what were... What were James and John thinking? You know, you look at these these two that they they were called the sons of thunder. They they would speak before they really thought. But these two, these two brothers who had been with Christ right in the middle of of Jesus telling them that he's gonna die and that he's he's gonna be spat on, that, that he's gonna suffer much. Well, let's get to the point. When we come into your, your kingdom, let us sit at your right hand and your left. You know, you know they believed that their position in the, in the kingdom was based on, on power and authority, and, and Jesus explains to them that the path to greatness is, is through service and suffering. It's the same kind of suffering that Jesus would endure. I mean, just look back at our passage in, in Mark 10. He verse 38 and 39. Jesus asks James and John this question. He says, "Are you able, are you able to drink that, the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the, the baptism with which I am baptized?" What Jesus is talking about is his suffering, but he's going to suffer and, and, and I can't believe how they, they answer because they clearly don't understand Jesus at this point. and they said to him, we are able. We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And ironically, it is that the James and John did suffer much like Jesus, didn't they? In fact, in Acts chapter 12, uh, James was the first martyr. He was beheaded by King, uh, King Herod Agrippa. John would suffer persecution throughout most of his life until he was exiled on the the Isle of of Patmos. And so, Jesus Christ, the Son of of Man, is the ultimate example of a servant in God's kingdom. And we saw that clearly in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. But everything that He did during His earthly ministry set an example for, for us and for them. Jesus healed the sick, Jesus fed the hungry, Jesus served the weakest and, and most uh, fringe people in society. He, the, the Lord of all creation, was the one that, that came down and we see in John chapter 13 that he stoops down and what does he do? He watches the disciples' feet. He, he pours water, he, he lays aside his outer garments, he, he ties the towel around his waist. And he washes his feet, and we, we see in that that Jesus came to pour out his life of service, and consequently, we are to give our lives in, in service to him and to others. We're to have this attitude that was in Christ Jesus. In John 13, verse 15, after he had washed the disciples' feet, he says this, For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. But when we look at at the service of Christ, and we we do see that it's an amazing example, that's not all it was, was it? It wasn't just an example, which which brings me to the third point, the the ransom of the the Son of Man, because some would say that that that's all Jesus did. All Jesus did was He was a good teacher, He was a good moral leader. He, He He lived a good life and and therefore we should follow His example, but that's it. But we see in our our verse again, at the end of verse 45, it says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and, see it's not just Jesus' earthly service, He says, and to give His life a ransom for many. So when we look at at Jesus and his earthly ministry, we see he did a lot of things. He healed people. He fed people. He performed miracles. He cast out demons. He He preached about the kingdom. But all of those things, the the end of all those things was that he might serve and and come and die on a cross for you and me. Notice it's not just that that he would care for us. He certainly does care for us. But it's a specific kind of service that, that he's saying here in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. That he would come and that he would suffer on a, on a cross for us. In Matthew's gospel, in chapter 1, in the birth narrative, you see this angel speaking to Joseph. And he, and he says to, to Joseph, She, meaning Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I like what one author said, he said this, we we can't read the Bible except through the lenses of the cross. I think that's so important that when we read about what Jesus did and how He lived, it's all pointing to to the cross. His life is pointing to the cross. His service is pointing to the cross. His birth is pointing to the cross. And as we see His birth and He's laying in a manger, we, we see today that that is depicted all over the place, and, and, and at city halls and in people's front yards, they have, they have these manger scenes everywhere. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have manger scenes. I just think for the most part, what, people don't even know what that means. People don't know why Christ came. We remember during the Christmas season that, that He came, but do we remember, do we remember why? R.T. France, in and, and his commentary on Mark, speaking of this passage in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, says this, this then is the stated purpose of Jesus' mission. His many acts of mercy, healing, teaching, challenging the norms of society, and all the other elements of Mark's story must be seen in the light of His own purpose, to give His life as a a ransom for many. And notice that that Jesus does this freely. He wasn't wasn't forced to come and to die. He wasn't wasn't born in a manger, and He he didn't just live this life and then by accident they didn't like Him, so they put Him to death. No, this is the reason that, that Jesus came, in verse 45, it says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give, to give His life a ransom for many. This wasn't an accident. You know, people have said that Jesus was a a victim, and Jesus wasn't a victim. Did Jesus suffer injustice? Of course He did. I mean, Acts talks about the injustice that, that Jesus suffered, that, that Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jews, and the Gentiles brought uh, Jesus to trial and, and crucified him. They were, they were guilty men. They, he suffered injustice, but he did so willingly. And we see this in, in a number of passages. We see it in our passage, but we also see it. Look back at, at Mark chapter 10, Verse thirty-two. I think this is interesting. He says in Mark ten thirty-two, and they were on <clears throat> they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And if you stop there, I mean, you know that the disciples are worried because the last time they were in Jerusalem, they were trying to arrest him, they're trying to kill him, and, and the disciples know that this is happening. But it says that they were on the road. Uh, going up to Jerusalem. And it says, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And we could easily think that Jesus was that, just a few feet, right? But look at what it says. That he's walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And I think what, what you get this picture is Jesus is like, he's beelining it to Jerusalem. He is walking ahead of them. And they're amazed at how fast he is going. It says, and those who followed after him were afraid. Jesus, why? Why are you going so fast? Don't you know what what awaits you there? In Luke's gospel, in chapter 9, verse 51, it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This was his passion. This was his desire. In John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, it says, For this reason the Father loves Jesus says this, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. He says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. This, this ransom was, was paid willingly. But also we see that it it was costly and to give His life as a ransom for many. When you think of God, we, we, we know that his, it says of Him that, that the cattle on a, a thousand hills is His. He has, he has all the wealth. He owns everything. And so, He could have, if possible, He could have. I don't think it was possible. I think Jesus had to die. But he could have paid any ransom, but the ransom that, that had to be paid was a even more costly ransom than, than money or silver or gold. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, he says, "'Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ.'" like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You now this, this ransom was paid by Jesus. And a ransom is something that is paid to, re, to release you from bondage. A ransom was paid to release us uh, who, who were slaves and, and prisoners. And Jesus is paying that ransom with His own life. And the payment was to, to the Father in, in perfect union with the Father and His will. See, some get confused and think, oh, who was was Jesus paying the ransom to? One theory was that that Jesus was paying the ransom to to Satan. Well, that's not true. Jesus was paying the ransom to His Father because the, the payment was due His Father. Listen to what Hebrews says. It says, He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy place places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then dropping down to verse 14, this says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without blemish to God? No. He offered Himself without blemish to God. It, it is God that, that needed to be satisfied. It, it was His holiness that was violated. It was God's law that was broken. It was God's justice that demanded propitiation, that might appease the, God's wrath. Now, Christ had to be sacrificed in our place, and, and ransom that He gave needed, uh, was needed for us to be saved. And the price of the ransom was the life of the Son, and He did so in our place. And, and when you look at this is, this is what we call the the vicarious atonement of Christ that he died in our, in our place or or the penal substitutionary atonement years ago as i was a new christian i I, I took a it was really my my, my first college class on, on theology and and it was called the essential doctrines of the of the Christian faith and and this class had such an impact on me because there were, there were five doctrines that the professor said these these are the essential doctrines. You, if you're a Christian, you're going to believe these five. One was this. It was, it was the deity of Christ. That, that Christ was both God and man. He wasn't just God and He wasn't just man. He was God and man. The second was the Trinity, that, that we believe that, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The third was this, the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead. That He, he, was, he was raised physically, wasn't just spiritually. He was raised physically. The fourth one was salvation by, by grace through faith, that it wasn't by works. It was nothing we could do. It was by the grace of God through faith in Christ. And the last one was the vicarious atonement to Christ, that, that He died as our substitute in our place. And when we look at Mark chapter 10, verse 45, you just see that one little word, for, And to give his life as a ransom for many. That word means in place of. It means in place of. And it it really echoes back to to Isaiah chapter 53, which Isaiah is describing the the suffering servant. And I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I just want to point out that some of the things that, that really tie in with this He will give His life a ransom for many. In Isaiah 53, you see the servant and it says, "'Surely He has borne our griefs.'" Again, our griefs are are on Him. He has carried our sorrows. Our sorrows are on Him. Verse 5 says, "'But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace.'" Verse 6, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8, he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of his people. Verse 11, and he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, and he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many. And that, that that connects with... But the last part of Mark chapter 10, verse 45, this is the gospel, that God would satisfy Himself by, by substituting Himself. John Stott said this, he said, the only way for God's holy love to be satisfied is for His holiness to be directed in judgment upon His appointed substitute in order that His love may be directed toward us in forgiveness. The substitute bears the penalty that we sinners may receive the pardon. Christ bears the penalty that we might receive the pardon. Brothers and sisters, we can't save ourselves. Now, we were in bondage, and you can't... sell. You can't set yourself free. And people try and try and try to earn their way into heaven. They try to to set themselves free. They, They try to pay their ransom. But it is too costly for us. Remember, it was the precious blood of Christ. That means something. It was too costly for us. We have sinned against a holy God, and therefore it will take a holy ransom Psalm 49 verse 7 says this, truly no man can ransom another. And that means I can't ransom myself, I can't ransom you, you can't ransom me, you can't ransom your children. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. See, we can give everything we try to give and it will never suffice. We could even give our lives and it would never suffice. No good works can, can, can ransom us from God. But verse 15 in Psalm 49 says this, but God, but God, just like in Ephesians chapter two, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol for he will receive me this sacrifice, this, this substitute needed to be God. And yet we see that it's, it's the Son of Man coming, and, and, and He comes to, to seek and to save that which is lost. He comes to, to serve and not to be served, to give His life a ransom for many. And that, that is the biblical doctrine, His life for our lives, we can never be good enough. We can never be strong enough. We can never be humble enough. We can never be holy enough to set ourselves free. I couldn't help but think of the song, My Worth is, is Not in What I Own. It says, my worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. The refrain says this, I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul, and I will trust in Him, no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. Why? Because He willingly gave His life for the many. Who are the many? The many are all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Redeemer. All all of those that the Father has has given to the Son are the many. All those whom the Father has elected before the foundation of the world. But let me end with, with this question. Are you one of the many? Are you one of the many? Have you put your faith in the Son of Man, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for you? Have you put your faith in Christ? Is He your ransom? Is He your ransom? Remember, you, you can never repay Him for what He's done. We could never offer a sacrifice that's good enough. How can He be repaid? He can't be. We just have to fall on his knees and and say, Lord, save me. Turn to him, turning away from all that your previous life offers and saying, I want to follow you. And when you do that, you become one of the many. So let me end with this. Why did Jesus come? What was that little baby sent here to accomplish? What was his mission? Quite simply, it was to serve. And he did so by giving up his life. He paid the ransom. We thank God that he is exalted and he has exalted his son. And he's now at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. We have a great Savior. And as we, as we celebrate Christmas this season, let us remember not just that he took on flesh, but what He came to accomplish. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You sent Your your one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him may have everlasting life. Lord, we pray that we would um, just remember what Your Son was sent to do that he was sent to redeem us. And we thank you for those of us who have been redeemed. Lord, we thank you for your great love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we pray as we sing your praises one last time that you would be glorified and exalted, just remembering that, that you were gracious and we can, never, we can never repay you. In Jesus' name, amen.